You're listening to audio from the archive of Highland Baptist Church. For more information about Highland, go to hbcwaco.org. It's good to see you all here today. John Wesley might be a familiar name uh, to many of you, if not all of you. John Wesley was the great evangelist, the fiery preacher back in the 1700s from England, but he made his way to Georgia, of all things, back in the early 1700s. He was invited by a pastor in Georgia to come and begin to preach some revivals and help to plant a church there in Georgia. On his way over, actually, John and Charles came together by boat from England. On the way over, they encountered a huge storm. In fact, the storm was so powerful that it knocked, uh, broke the mast in half on their, on their ship. Um, John and Charles Wesley became very fearful. They began to panic. In fact, in his biography, uh, John Wesley speaks of being overwhelmed with fear uh, at this point of the boat pretty much breaking in half in the middle of the storm and, and no way to get to shore. And they looked around, and there were some members of the Moravian Church. Uh, that church is still in existence. In fact, it's the oldest Protestant church in, in all of history. There were some members of the Moravian Church, and they were doing what most members of the Moravian Church still do today. They were singing and they were praying. That's kind of the two uh, uh, marks of the Moravian Church. They sing a lot and they pray a lot. And there on the deck of this boat, uh, these Moravian church members were singing and praying as John Wesley was in the corner, fearful and just certain and anxious that he was about to die. They made their way to Georgia. They lived, as you probably could well imagine, they lived to tell the rest of the story. They lived, made their way to Georgia, and there uh, John Wesley began to preach, began to preach some revivals, was planting churches across the brand new uh, colonies in that area, in the brand new area of Georgia. He fell in love with a lady. Uh, her name was uh, Sophia. Fell in love with her and thought this may be the lady that he wants to marry. Uh, she was a very young widow, age of 28. She had four children. Her husband had passed away, and, and John Wesley was wrestling, is this the, the person I am to marry? Is this the, the person, what, what is God's will with, uh, with this lady? Am I to marry, am I to marry Grace and so, or Sophia? Am I to marry Sophia? And so they, he wrestled with it, he prayed through it, and finally he came to the point that he went to a friend by the name of Charles de la Monte. He went to Charles and said, Charles, I cannot discern the will of God. Should I marry this lady or not? Should I marry Sophia or not? And so Charles said, I have a bright idea for you. This was not his brother Charles, but another friend named Charles de la Monte. Charles said, I want you to write down three possibilities and rip them and put them into three different um, pieces of paper and put them inside of a hat. The first piece of paper needs to say, marry this woman now. The second piece of paper needs to say, wait for a year and then ask God again. The third piece of paper needs to say, get out while you can. Do not marry this woman. And so John Wesley wrote down those three phrases, put them on three individual sheets of paper, put them inside of the hat. He stirred them up a little bit, and he pulled out of the hat, leave while you can, do not marry this woman. And so John Wesley was undone because he loved this woman. He loved Sophia a whole lot. So he went to Sophia and said, God has spoken to me. We are not to, to get married. Well, the rest of the, the few years that John Wesley was there in Georgia, things didn't go real well, honestly. In fact, he returned to England, and this is probably the John Wesley we have read about and know about the most. He returned to England and began to become a, just a, a fiery evangelist where thousands and thousands of people were saved, and, and tens of thousands of people would, would hear his sermons across Europe and across England especially, and then he fell in love with another lady. Her name was Grace. And he had written down seven qualities that he wanted to find in a wife. 
written down seven qualities. I don't remember all the qualities were from, from the biography. One of them was that she loved and could teach God's Word. One of the qualities that John Wesley was looking for in, in a wife was that she was a great encourager and a great supporter. Uh, one of the qualities that he was looking for was a lady who was a nurse, who by training was a nurse. That's probably because he was getting old at this point. He wanted to marry a young wife that could take care of him, maybe, you know, when he got older. And so he had seven qualifications down that he was looking for in, in a wife. And this lady, this, this lady he was dating named Grace, she met every one of those seven qualifications. So he was about to propose to her until John's brother Charles came into town. And Charles said, why are you dating this woman? She's not for you. And John said, no, she meets all seven of the criterion that I have for, for a wife. She, she is the perfect woman for me. And Charles said, you, brother, are not allowed to marry her. So John Wesley, with a broken heart, went to Grace's house. And his biography said he passed out because he was breathing so hard. He was so nervous. He passed out on her front porch. She eventually came to the door, asked him what was going on. And he said, I must break up with you. We can't get married. God has told me through my brother, this is God's pleasing and perfect will for my life, that we not get married. A few years later, John Wesley is in his mid-40s at this point. He meets another lady by the name of Mary. He does not ask Charles de la Monte what he should do. He does not tell his brother Charles what he's going to do. He proposes to Mary the very next week, and that marriage was horrible. It was a terrible marriage. She would get upset. Mary would get so irate with John Wesley, she would go into his study and rip up all of his sermon notes. Oh, my gosh. Rip up all of his sermon notes. John Wesley, if you've seen a picture of him before, had long gray hair. She would grab John by the hair and pull him through the hallways of their home. It's why I keep my hair short. And pull, pull him through the hallways at the house. It was a terrible marriage. She finally left about seven years into the marriage and said, I no longer want to be married to you and walked away. And one of the friends of John came to him and said, aren't you going to go after your wife? And he said, absolutely not. She's gone. I mean, this is the founder of the Methodist Church, the co-founder of the Methodist Church, a great man of faith, and he had the most difficult time in life making decisions. So this morning, as we wrap up our series on the conquerors, I want to be very practical with you. How do you make decisions in life? How do you discern the will of God in our lives? Let me make the statement to you one more time. We will either be conquered by life and all the decisions we have to make, and being overwhelmed with trying to figure out the perfect will of God and discerning the will of God, or we will be conquerors in life through the power of God. This morning, let's go back to the great book of Judges. Would you go there with me, please, to Judges chapter 6? Should we be using signs to understand and determine God's will? Because that's what Gideon is doing here. Judges chapter 6, if you would go to verse 36 with me, please, as we wrap up the series on the conquerors this morning. Judges chapter 6 and go to verse 36. There's a great block of Scripture right here. In fact, I'll teach you a good SAT word this morning. It's a parochopy, a parochopy of Scripture. A, it's a block, a story within Scripture, uh, verses 36 through verse 40 of the fleece and Gideon. Gideon and Gideon's fleece. And so with your Bible, look at Judges chapter 6, verse 36 with me. Let me read through this story, and then keep your Bible open, please. So Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor, 
If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Now don't be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. This time make the fleece dry and the ground covered with dew. And that night God did so. Only the fleece was dry and all the ground was covered with dew. You have probably heard that expression before. I'm going to put out a fleece and see what God does. That's where this comes from, Judges chapter 6. Many of us, if not all of us in this room, we have tried to determine God's decision and God's will for our lives by looking for some kind of signs or some kind of confirmation. Let me share with you three things this morning. You see these things inside the notes that should be inside your bulletin that you received when you, when you walked in. Let me just make this statement. The problem with signs is that we're never satisfied with them and we always want one more. That's the problem with signs. We're really never satisfied with just one word from God or one confirmation from God. If you're looking for signs to direct your lives, you're always going to be looking for one more sign. It's exactly what Gideon was saying right here. God, that was really cool what you did with the fleece and the ground and the dew, but I just want a sign to make sure that was a sign, right? I want to make sure that was a sign. Give me a sign that that was a sign so I can know the sign for what I need to do for the rest of my life and if this battle really is going to belong to me. The problem with signs, church, is that we're always looking for another sign to confirm the sign that we thought was a sign from God. So in Judges chapter 6, we see Gideon wrestling with the will of God and He's asking for one more sign, but actually this was not the first sign nor the second sign that God had already given to Gideon. Your Bible should still be open. Let's look back one more time at the biography of Gideon. Go back to Judges chapter 6. Just go back one page perhaps in some of your Bibles and look there at verse 12 with me. Judges chapter 6 verse 12. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon. I don't know about you, but that's a pretty good sign. If God has sent a messenger... And a holy man from God, from the presence of God, comes down and begins to speak to me. That's a pretty good sign of what God desires for my life. So God had already given Gideon a sign. If that wasn't enough, jump down to Judges chapter 6, verse 14. Now the Lord turned to him. That should be capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in your Bible. That's the name of God. Jehovah God, Yahweh God, turns to Gideon. Again, that would be, to me, a great sign. An angel, first of all, and now the Lord himself is, is speaking to me. That would be a, a good sign. One of the stories that we skipped is down in Judges chapter 6, verse 21. The angel is still hanging out with Gideon, and he has a staff. And with the tip of the staff that was in the, the hand of the angel, the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread, and fire flared from the rock. So if an angel wasn't enough of a sign for Gideon and the Lord himself speaking to Gideon, now you have a rock that's on fire. You would think that would be a good sign for Gideon. Another great sign that the Lord had already given to Gideon was over there in in verse 31 where Gideon's father Joash has turned away from the pagan god of Baal and is now turning. We see a transformation in the life of Joash, the father of Gideon. He is now turning his heart toward God. That would be another sign that God is already using to direct and to guide Gideon. If that wasn't enough, look down, down in Judges chapter 6 verse 34. The Spirit of the Lord has already come upon Gideon. So God, time and time again, is is directing Gideon through an angel, through the Lord himself, 
through a rock that is spitting out fire to the transformation of his father through the Holy Spirit coming down on top of him and getting is still saying, oh God, would you just give me a sign? And that's what I'm telling you, brothers and sisters. If you're looking for a sign, you'll always look for another sign to confirm the sign that you thought was coming from God. That's the problem with signs. We're always looking for one more. Let me tell you the other problem with this passage right here. Gideon wants God to jump through some hoops. And Gideon is dictating to God, God, this is what you're going to have to do for me. Let me tell you, friends, that generally does not work with God. When we tell him what he needs to do on our behalf, what he needs to do for us. So why is Gideon not just crushed right here by God's hand? Why does God not just say, I am so put out with you? Well, let me tell you, first of all, God is very rich in his compassion and very slow in his anger. And that's good news for me and that's real good news for you. But also right here, remember Gideon has just turned away from paganism. In our New Testament vernacular, Gideon is a brand new believer. He has just walked away from a household that he was raised in that worshiped Baal. He has walked away from fear. He has walked away from hopelessness. He is now walking with God. He is walking now in the strength of God, the victory of God. He is walking now in the power of God, but he had just left paganism. He was a brand new follower of God. I believe with all my heart, that's the reason God is not upset here and actually jumps through those hoops, if you will, for Gideon. But I would say to all of us today, generally that's not the way we deal with God, telling him what to do on our behalf. Second thing I want you to see here, this is fascinating. You may have read this already. Look back into your passage, that parochopy we just looked at. There's your SAT word again. Judges chapter 6, verse 36. Because Gideon really answers his own question. Gideon really answers the sign that he is looking for. Look at verse 36 with me. I'm reading out of the NIV, so it might sound a little bit different than your translation. But Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have promised. Wait a minute. God has already given a promise to Gideon, and now he wants a sign that that promise is truly going to come to fruition. Gideon has already answered his own question. He is looking for a sign, God direct me, but he's already said it out loud, God, just as you have promised me already. Look down to the end of that same verse, verse 37. And then I will know, if you give me the sign, that you will save Israel by my hand as you said. Gideon has already answered his question. Gideon has already been given the sign. God has already told Gideon, I will do this for you. I will conquer Midian for you. I will give this victory to you and to all of Israel. I will deliver you from the hands of Midian, the hands of the Amalekites, and the the hand of the sons of the eastern people. And Gideon already knows that. He says, as you promised, God, I want one more sign. As you have said, but I want one more sign. Here's a word for all of us here today. You see this in your notes. Our struggle is not knowing God's will. It's doing God's will. Most of us in this room, we know what God's will is for our lives. He's already revealed it to us through his word. So our struggle, I would say today, is not, God, I want to, I want to know your will. I want to know your, your wisdom for my life. For most of us here today, the struggle is not knowing God's will. It's doing God's will. It's acting upon the things that God has already revealed to us. God doesn't want us, third thing this morning, God doesn't want us living according to signs. He desires for us to live according to his word. 
God's word is the revealed will of God. So I say to you again, our struggle for most of us is not, God, I want to know your will. It's, God, I need to do your will. Because God has already revealed so much of his will to us, his revealed will to us in, in his word. He has given this to us already. So he does not want us to live lives according to these signs. Why? Because we always second guess a sign. So I'll be very transparent with you this morning. Some of you probably have some ridiculous stories like this as well. At least kind of hope you do. So I don't feel so ridiculous in sharing these stories with you. I remember very well as a freshman in, in, at Baylor in Penland, room 183, thinking about asking a girl out. And I was anxious about asking this girl out. And I recall this so vividly that I said, God, if I am to ask this girl out, would you cause the phone to ring right now? And it didn't ring. So I thought, well, maybe, maybe he needs a little bit more time. And maybe she needs time to get the phone or someone else needs time. Well, I wasn't even looking for her to call. I just wanted somebody to call. Like anybody could call. So God, I'll give you a few more moments to like tap a Christian that needs to go to a phone and, and get to me. This is before cell phone days. So it's not like you had them all on you. So I'll give you a little more time. God, if I'm to ask this girl out, make the phone ring now, now. Now, let the phone, phone ring now. <laughs> I was looking for, this, for the sign, and honestly, if the phone would have rang, I would have picked it up and talked to her and hung it back up and said, God, I, I think that was a sign. But just to confirm that was a sign, would you make the phone ring again now? Like now ring again, one more time. For, I've, I've done that before. And, and some of you are looking at me like, man, can we revote on this pastor guy? That's the times I've tried to discern God's will. I'll tell you another time that if you have been in Waco long enough, you might find some humor in this. And honestly, I don't even remember what I, was, what I was weighing out, like what decision I was trying to make. But I remember telling the Lord at I-35 and Valley Mills, so kind of close to the circle, God, I'm trying to determine your will. So if I need to make this decision, <laughs> I'm embarrassed to say this, would you make sure that every light is green between here and Lakeshore Drive. And if I hit a light on Valley Mills and all the lights are green, then I will know your will for my life. <laughs> and I, I don't, I'm probably, you know, made it up to, you know, two lights, maybe Franklin, maybe, before, you know, a light changed right before Franklin, the little overpass there by the old Floyd Casey Stadium. And I'm sure the light, you know, that was about where it was that I realized, man, that wasn't God's will. But what if Satan, like, is in control of the lights, you know, here and the traffic lights here in Waco? So maybe, you know, it's just, that's the problem with signs is we're always looking for one more sign. Then we wonder, is that a sign from God or is that a sign from my enemy or is that coincidence? That's the problem with signs. God does not want us second guessing all the time in our lives. God, what is, what is your will for my life? What should I do in my life? Why? Because God desires for us to live life according to his word. God has already given us his word, his will, his revealed will for our lives. And so if you're here today and you're thinking, you know, God, should I, should I date this non-Christian? Should I marry this non-Christian girl? Should I marry this non-Christian man? Should I date this non-Christian man? You don't have to ask God for that. He's already given you an answer in his word. If you're wondering, should I serve in a church? Should I be a part of a church? Should I plant myself and use my spiritual gifts to build up a local body? Let me tell you something, church. You don't have to weigh that decision out. You don't need to look for a sign. God's word is already very clear on that. Should I give financially to ministries? Should I give financially to a local church? You don't need to weigh that out. You don't need to, to barter with God. You don't need to make that decision a, a difficult decision. God's word is already clear to us. So I'm telling you, 
If you'll love God's word and know God's word, so much of God's will has already been revealed to you individually through his word. It's why Jesus said, I believe, a wicked and perverse generation is always looking for a sign. Jesus said, there's only one sign. It's the sign of Jonah. What does he mean by that? It's the sign of my resurrection. That's the only sign you need is the fact that I can conquer death and I will conquer death. It is a evil and perverse and wicked generation that's just always looking around for a sign to confirm something that perhaps we've already seen in God's word. So God gives us a great promise this morning to all of us that he will direct us throughout life. And let me just say, if you're between the ages of 15 and 25, that 10-year window is a huge, hugely important 10-year window. In between the ages of 15 and 25, not that the decisions that we make over the age of 25 or under the age of 15 are not important, but it's kind of reflecting back in my own life, that 10-year window is a very important window of life for you to discern the perfect and pleasing will of God in your life. So let me just ask real quick. I've done this a couple of times before. I always am encouraged by this. If that's you, between the ages of 15 and 25, would you just lift a hand for me real quick, make sure I can see it, between the age of 15 and 25, that's a big, my hand should not be up right now. That's a big, that's a big group of, of folks. You can put your, put your hands down. That's an important window in life for you to really understand and discern the will of God. I've got some good news for you this morning for everybody, especially if you're in that age group. God's promise is to direct you throughout life. Would you leave for just a second the book of Judges and go about 12 books over to the book of Psalms with me? And go to Psalm chapter 32, if you don't mind. Go to Psalm chapter 32, because God has already given us a promise to direct us throughout life. He had already directed Gideon. That's what's amazing to me. He had already directed Gideon, already instructed Gideon, but Gideon was still looking for this sign in his immaturity. Look at Psalm chapter 32 and go to verse 8 with me, please. You'll see these passages on the screen behind me as well. Psalm 32, look at verse 8. This is a good one. God speaking to his people, I will instruct you and I will teach you in the way you should go. Phew, good. I will counsel you and I will watch over you. You see this in your notes. Those four verbs right there are very peace-giving verbs since they come from God. His promise is to instruct. His promise is to teach. His promise is to counsel and his promise is to watch over us. Those are strong words for God to say to us about our lives. Those are great peace-giving words for you and I to hold on to that we don't have to look for signs and ask for these confirmations and, and put out these fleeces because God has promised already to instruct us, to teach us, to counsel us, and to watch us. Go over a few more pages to the right and look at Psalm chapter 37 and go to verse 23. Psalm chapter 37, verse 23. Another good word for all of us here today, many of us here today, especially if you have failed at some point in these past few days or past few weeks or past few semesters and, and really trusting the Lord. If, if the Lord delights in a man's way, God makes his steps firm. And though he or though we stumble, we're not going to fall, for the Lord upholds us or uphold that man with his hand. Here's what I put in your notes for you. Establishing our steps. God promised to establish our steps. Establishing our steps, he holds us when we fall. We're going to stumble, 
And actually, the Bible says we stumble. We don't really hit the ground. We don't really fall. But he, he holds us as we fall. He holds us as we, as we stumble. And I would imagine that's probably a part of the biography of every person in this room. That you look back over the past year, 2014, and we have stumbled. We have made decisions that were poor. We made some decisions that were selfish that honored our name more than it honored the name of God. And the good word for those who belong to God is that he establishes our steps. And even when we stumble, even when we begin to fall, he holds us by his hand. The same right hand that saved you is the same right hand that sustains you. God holds us as he establishes our steps. Psalm chapter 48, verse 14 Go over a few more pages to the right. Psalm 48, 14. This might be my favorite of this little four-group uh, set, four set of, uh, of, of passages. Psalm chapter 48, verse 14. It's a short verse. It's an easy one to memorize. I might challenge you to do so this week. The psalmist writes, For this God is our God forever and ever, and he will be our guide even to the end. For this God is our God forever and ever, and he will be our guide even to the end. I wrote this in your notes for you. It is God's lifelong promise for us, our lifelong, his lifelong promise to guide us. For this God is our God forever and forever, and he will be, not he might be or he may be someday, he will be our guide to the end. And so we kind of step back from some of these passages and we think, well, why am I always looking for some kind of sign of confirmation? If God has already given me his promise, he will instruct me. He will counsel me. He will watch over me. He will establish my steps. Even when I fall, he will hold on to me. For this God is my God forever and forever. He will be my guide to the end. For sake of time, you don't have to turn there, but on the screen behind me, you will see Isaiah chapter 30, verse 21, a great passage the prophet wrote, whether you turn to the right or to the left, and this is God speaking to his people, whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears, that's an operative word there, it's a personal pronoun, your ears will hear a voice. You will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. His commitment, I wrote in your notes, is to be your personal guide. He will speak to your ears. He will guard and guide your life. He will instruct and counsel and watch over you. This God, the architect of the entire universe, things that are visible and things that are invisible, he is a personal guide to you. He will be behind you telling you in your ears which way to go. These are all great promises. If you're somewhere, again, in that window between 15 and 25, I would encourage you to write these verses down somewhere. Maybe put them in your car, put them uh, in, in your room. Uh, maybe put them on your, on your iPad as part of your screensaver that you would see these verses. Because these verses will pull you back from always with great angst, looking for some kind of sign from God to confirm what you need to do tomorrow or what you need to do this semester or what decision you need to make for life because God has already given you this promise. He will instruct you and he will give you wisdom and he will establish your steps and he will speak to you in your ears which way 
to go. Let me just tell you, this is not in your notes, but the blessings of God, truly the blessings of God, they are not in what he gives us. The greatest blessing of God is that he's with us. He walks with us. He cares about you. He knows your story. He knows your life. He knows your past. He knows today. Good news, he knows your tomorrow already. And so God, this God will be our guide forever and forever. So then, let me wrap up this series of the conquerors with some real practical words. This isn't just for the 15 to 25-year-olds. This is for everyone here today. If you're trying to discern God's will for your life and trying to figure out, you know, God, what do you want from me? What is next? What does this week look like? What does next year look like? Let me give you four things this morning based on biblical principles on how you can discern God's will. If it's not through through uh, signs, if it's not through traffic lights on Valley Mills or a phone ringing at the right time, certainly God has given us the discernment on how we can make wise decisions. Here's the first thing I wrote down for you. You might want to write these down. If not on your notes, you can write this down in the back of your Bible. That's how noteworthy the things I'm about to give you truly are. Number one, keep your heart focused more on the guide than the guidance itself. Keep your heart focused more on the guide than the guidance itself. I wonder how often you and I pray, God, just give me guidance for this week. God, just give me guidance for next year. God, just tell me what I need to do with my life. God, give me guidance on my major. Give me guidance in my relationships. Give me guidance in, and should I marry this person? Give me, and so many times we keep asking for guidance, we forget to press into the guide. And New Testament believer, I've got good news for you. You have a guide. He is the Holy Spirit. In fact, the word paraclete, which is the Greek word for the Holy Spirit, means one who walks with you, one who is your guide. And so often we seek the guidance over seeking the guide himself. We want the wisdom more than the one who gives us the wisdom. If I were to put you on a plane today and send you to Mumbai, India, a city of 18 million people, let me just ask you, would you rather have a map, you try to read it, much less try to fold it back up correctly? Or should I give you a guide who has been there before and lives in Mumbai? So do you want, want a map that, to get you across the city? Or do you want someone who is there, who lives there, who knows all things about that huge city in India? I would imagine you'd rather have the guide more than to have the map. And so often we beg God for the map to our lives, and he's already given us the guide. We already have the Holy Spirit of God. And there's a lot of debate today within circles, evangelical circles, charismatic circles, uh, reformed theology circles of, you know, the Holy Spirit. How much the Holy Spirit do you get? When do you get the Holy Spirit? The baptism of the Holy Spirit, the second baptism of the Holy Spirit, the baptism by water. I mean, all those kind of things, those are all kind of debates. Let me just kind of clear the waters for just a second and make this statement about the Holy Spirit. The question isn't how much the Holy Spirit do you have? The question is how much of you does the Holy Spirit have? It is a surrendering of your life to the Holy Spirit. So this debate on how much the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit, I'm thinking that we may be arguing about the wrong thing. The thing we need to be looking at is, God, how much of my life belongs to you? Am I fully surrendered to the leadership of the Spirit of God in my life? The focus, friends, can't just be on the guidance. Our hearts must be pressed into the guide himself. Second thing. God's guidance is not mechanical, it's personal. 
And I know I've used that word once already, and I purposely repeated it this time because that's an operative word when it comes to discerning the will of God, pressing into a personal relationship with God. God is not a mechanical God. He's a very personal God. In fact, reflect with me, if you don't mind, on the 23rd Psalm. It's not on the screen behind me. You don't have to turn there. But the psalmist said, the Lord is my shepherd, and I shall not want. And he leads me beside quiet waters. He, he makes me lie down by the quiet waters. He leads me through these streams that uh, uh, guides me on paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He leads me through the valley of the shadow of death. He, 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 his uh, rod and his staff, they comfort me. He takes me home in the end to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. All throughout the 23rd Psalm is this, this picture, this personal God leading me, for he is my shepherd. He guides me. He comforts me. And I think sometimes we try to make God so mechanical and kind of put him into this cookie-cutter type of God, and we say, God, you dealt with that person that way. Would you deal with me in the same way? And I saw you, how you dealt with that person over there, how you led them. Would you lead me in the same way? I wonder sometimes if we think, well, God, I'm going to put the, the quarter into the box, and I hope you kick out to me your perfect will written on a piece of paper, that somehow we have begun to believe that God is some mechanical God. And I want to say to you today, he's not mechanical, he's personal. And we try to put him into a box, and we try to make God kind of churchy and, and meet our formula. And God, here's five steps. If I do these five things, then you have to give these things back to me. Don't put God in a box. And I may send some of you to heaven early by saying this. God is not Southern Baptist. God's not Southern Baptist. Don't put him in your box. Don't make him mechanical. Don't pull down on the arm thinking, oh, God, I'm doing this. Now you have to do something for me. That's really the immaturity of Gideon. He was looking for God to do something for him. Even though God had already guided him as a personal guide, even though the Holy Spirit had already come upon Gideon, he was looking for God to be some kind of mechanical robot God, and he's not that way. He's a personal God. Press into God this week. If you're looking to make a decision this week, press into God. When you have a heavy decision to make, press into God. I might want to say this to you today very clearly. Often the will of God is not about the outcome of what that will is. Often the will of God is about establishing a relationship with God. We're looking for the outcome. We're looking for a precise measurement from God of what we need to do. And what if the entire time our wrestling with the will of God was not about the decision, but about the relationship with Him that becomes closer and more intimate and more dynamic and more alive as we wrestle with Him over the will of His heart for our lives? Number three, you will find guidance when you listen to godly people. I did not write down there, you'll find guidance when you talk to church people. I did not even write down, you'll find guidance when you talk to Christians. I'm saying you'll find guidance when you talk to godly men and women. Men and women filled with the Spirit of God, led by the Spirit of God, knowledgeable of the Word of God. Men and women who walk with integrity with God, and it's a noticeable relationship that they have with the Lord. If you're looking for decisions, uh, uh, looking for wisdom over a decision you need to make, I would encourage you, as part of discerning God's will, you go to godly people. Let me let you see on the screen behind me, Proverbs chapter 24. 
Solomon writes, for waging war, you need guidance. And for victory, understood, you need many advisors. For waging war, you need guidance. For victory, many advisors. Now, would you remember with me that Solomon is known biblically as being the wisest man who has ever lived? So the wisest man who has ever lived, who had great wisdom, I assume, to discern the will of God, this man is also saying, I need guidance for war. I need advisors for, for victory. Some of your translations actually use the word counselor. I need some counselors in my life if I'm going to experience victory. I will say to you again, church, if you're looking to discern the will of God, it is a good thing to go to other people, but make sure those that you go to love God, fear God and love God's word. I'll put in your notes for you a good axiom for the day. There's a problem when we listen to no one, and there's a problem when we listen to everyone. Right? There's a problem when we just say, I can do this by myself. I'm an island. I'm a lone ranger. I don't need anybody's help. I don't need a counselor. I don't need advice. There's a problem when you think you need to listen to no one, but there's just a greater problem if you feel like you have to listen to everybody. And that everyone's opinion is going to count. And you have to appease everybody and please everybody. There's a problem when you listen to no one. And there's a problem when you listen to everyone. Number four, we're going to wrap up. You will hear his guidance when you follow his word. You will hear his guidance when you follow his word. My testimony might be different than testimonies of people in this room, and they're welcome to share their testimony with you, but here's my testimony. I've never heard the voice of God audibly. I've never heard God's voice come from heaven and say something to me. I'm assuming it sounds something like Mufasa, James Earl Jones, if he were to do that, but I've never heard God's voice before. If you have, that's great. Because we don't have a mechanical God, we have a personal God. I've never heard God's voice before, but I hear his voice every time I read his word. He guides me every time I read his word. His word is a lamp. His word is a light. His word is instruction. His word is discernment. His word is wisdom. So if you want to hear God's voice, you go to God's word. Why? Because God has already given us everything that we need for life and for godliness in his word. We can go to it for instruction and for wisdom. And so I would say to you, and I don't mean to, say, to sound harsh when I say this, but if you're struggling to discern God's word, God's will for your life, but you're not in God's word, you're not going to know God's will apart from God's word. If you're struggling to know the will of God for your life, but you're not spending time in God's word, good luck. Because you will not know his will apart from his word. You go to God's word. If you want to hear his voice for your life, follow his word. Ask the Holy Spirit to guide you into all truth. That's the job description of the Holy Spirit of God. When Jesus left us, he did not leave us as orphans. He gave us the Holy Spirit, and this Holy Spirit will guide us into truth. My last statement in your notes and last statement of this series. God is so much more concerned about who you are than where you are and what you do. God is so much more concerned about who you are 
not where you are and what you're doing. So much of the will of God, we have reduced it down to this. God, where should I live next? God, where should I go to school? God, what person should I marry? What job should I take on? What should be my major? We've kind of reduced God's will down to geography and occupation. Have you noticed that? God, I just want to know where and I want to know what. And I truly believe the heart of God is not about geography and occupation, the where and the what, but the heart of God is about you and who you are in Christ Jesus and who you are as a follower of God. And if your heart reflects his heart, and if your heart is obedient and your answer to God before he even asks the question is, yes, God, while walking in your ways, your name and your renown are the desires of my heart. Back in 1917, a man was driving down a lonely, country, dusty road. He was in his Model T Ford. They were produced about four to five years before uh, this story happened. In his Model T Ford, as he was going down the road, he noticed that the engine began to die out a little bit, then it would rev back up, would die out and rev back up, and the car would hesitate, and then eventually the car just died in the middle of this lonely, dusty country road. He got out, and if you can recall what a Model T Ford looks like in your mind, he had to open up the side engine of the car, and he went into the side of the car, and he tinkered with a few things, went to the front, tried to crank it a few times, went back to the side of the engine, tried to get things working again, went back to his car, and it just wouldn't start. For about 45 minutes, he, he did this, but to no avail. And he saw some dust kicking up on the horizon from that lonely, dusty country road. And the car came down. A man got out of the car and said, sir, what's the problem? And the man, who at this point was kind of just exhausted and a little frustrated with his car, said, well, I have no idea. I, I tried to fix it. I opened it up and I tried to make sure the spark plugs were right and tried to make sure everything was clean and looking right. I just have no idea what's, what's wrong with this car. And so the man looked at it as well and tinkered with a few things, went to the front, cranked it, nothing Went back into the engine, moved a few things around, cranked it, nothing. And without offering the man a ride, he got back into his car and, and took off. Another half hour, another 45 minutes, another hour went by, and again, some dust began to appear on the horizon of that lonely, dusty country road. This time, a man in a Model T Ford came right behind this guy, stepped out of the car with a full three-piece suit on, Asked the man, what's wrong? He said, I have no idea. I've been here for a couple hours now. I'm, I'm frustrated. This dumb car, I can't get it to start. I'm in the middle of nowhere. Do you mind taking me into town? And the man said, well, first of all, let me look at it. So opened up the side of the engine and moved a few things around for just a second. Went to the front, turned it, and cranked it, and the car started. The man said, how'd you do that? I've been here for two hours. I've been trying to work on it. Someone else came and tried to work on it. And he said, I, how in the world did you do that to this car? How'd you get it started? The man said, let me introduce myself to you. My name is Henry Ford. <laughs> I'm the one that designed this car. I built this car. I know everything about this car, and your car is going to be just fine for years to come. Can I challenge you to press into the Creator this week? To press into the one who made you? who knows everything about you, who cares about you, and desires to reveal his will to you. God is not a God who is withholding his will, that you have to somehow in great frustration figure it out. He is the God who can be known through Jesus. 
in the God who can be found, in the God whose will is already revealed in his word. That is the spirit of being a conqueror. Would you bow your head and bow your heart with me, please, as we pray. Jesus, thank you. You did not leave us as orphans, but you gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit. And God, honestly, our struggle today is not knowing your will, it's doing your will. It's being obedient to the things you've already called us to be obedient to. And if we're going to struggle with your revealed will, God, we're going to really struggle with your personal will for our lives. So God, thank you that you did not leave us guessing. Thank you, God, you're not a mechanical God dealing with all of us individually the same, but you're a personal God. A God who is our shepherd, my shepherd, making me lie down in green pastures, leading me beside the quiet waters. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, God, you are with me. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. God, forgive us when we put you into a box. Forgive us when we make you churchy. Because you're a personal God who guides us, who instructs us, who teaches us. Forgive us when we look for signs here and there, confirmations. When it's a wicked and perverse generation that does that. Because God, you've already given us everything we need for life and for godliness when you gave us the Spirit and gave us your Word. So Father, for many this morning, we come back to a crossroad to make a decision on what your perfect will is for our lives. God, we know this. It is your will that none should perish, but all should come to you in faith. And you're not slow in keeping your promises as some might consider slow. But you desire for many, even here at Highland this morning, to repent and to turn to Jesus Christ for life, for rescue, for hope, and for heaven. God, that's your perfect will for our lives. You've already revealed it. That we repent of sin and turn to Jesus. God, it's your perfect will for our lives that we walk in purity clean hands and a pure heart. It is your perfect will for our lives that we refrain from sexual impurity. We don't have to wrestle with if that's your will or not. We don't have to wrestle, God, in in knowing your will. We are just wrestling with doing it. God, it's your will that we use our spiritual gifts to build up the church. It is your will, God, that we don't forsake coming together but that we come together and spur one another on toward good works we don't have to wrestle with that God that's your will revealed already to us in your word God we know your will is to share the gospel for us to share the gospel this week to pray to give to forgive to demonstrate grace we don't have to wrestle today whether we should forgive the person who hurt us God your word has already told us to forgive just as you have forgiven us in Christ Jesus. God, thanks for giving us your will and your word and your promise that this is our God forever and forever and he will be our guide to the very end. Give us grace now, Father, to respond. Through Christ Jesus, we are thankful. 
And through Christ Jesus, we pray and we sing. Amen.